Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. We're going to get started. <clears throat> Hope you're doing well today. Got a lighter crowd. I wonder. We got some first timers over here. First time. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're not going to awkwardly make you stand up and say anything. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if it is your first time, welcome. We do this every Tuesday. We record it, put it online on my YouTube channel. And um, we invite anybody here. It'd be nice to eventually get so big that we have to pack it in. So continue to tell people. Okay. Continue to invite donations are separate. We yes, we don't. Uh, Jeff Conway, the owner of Bruce Chris, provides this meal for free, and he and I both ask that in response that you leave a tip each week because that goes straight to the ladies in back who fix it for us. So uh, tip generously. Tip sacrificially, give what you think it's worth, which, come on, it's worth a lot. So, um, I mean, McLean's here. Come on, just that's right. <laughs> exit for everything. That's right. <clears throat> We're in Exodus. We're going through the book of Exodus. If you are just joining us or if you've missed some weeks, hop online and you can check out just 30 minutes each week. You can watch it on your phone, uh, you can watch it on your lunch break, other days of the week. But that's the goal is to, this study is to, to provide people that come with a foundational understanding of the story of God's people. That's what it is. It's not a pep talk for the day. It's not a make you feel good on a Tuesday to get you through the week. Um, there's nothing wrong with those, but that's not what we are doing. What we're doing is long-term building your biblical understanding so that you have a solid foundational worldview upon which to face the things you face in life and that you get to see where you fit in God's plan that spans the centuries, that spans the millennium. So it is, it's a big picture approach. That's why we only do a chapter a week, sometimes half a chapter a week. It's because we're going through and we're, we're surveying the land of the Bible. And we're doing it in the books that a lot of times get overlooked or ignored or get paraphrased to tell the children as Sunday school lessons. And so what we're doing is giving those texts back their authority and their life in, in the lives of believers. So when you come each week, you're not just coming to a Bible study, but you're actually, you're, you're, you're stepping back into the world of Scripture. And you're, you're reading the inspired text that Jesus himself meditated on and read and was intimately familiar with in ways that we rarely understand today. So we're in Exodus 9, and we're in the middle of the plagues cycle, the plagues that God's sending against Egypt. The, the, the plagues run in a cycle. The first nine signs are cycles of three. Plagues one, two, and three in different ways corresponds to plagues four, five, and six, which correspond to plagues seven, eight, and nine. Then there's going to be a long interlude where God gives the Passover, and then there's going to be the final tenth plague, which is the most severe and results in the freedom of God's people. So <clears throat> you should be able to look for and see certain similarities between the plagues in those cycles of threes. And we saw the first one of the second cycle last week, uh, which was the plague of flies. And now we're going to look at the next plague that God sends, chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may serve. Again, if you're in IV, it says worship, but the verb is serve. So that they may serve me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, and here NIV leaves out the word behold, but it's there in Hebrew, hene, behold, or look, or pay attention, 
The hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses and donkeys, camels, on your cattle and sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. In the corresponding plague in the previous cycle, Moses had said to Pharaoh, set the time when you want me to pray and this plague be ended with the, uh, with the frogs. And now, so corresponding to that in the pattern, now this time God says, I'm going to set the time. You set the time last time, and I did it, and you didn't respond favorably. So no more for you setting the time. Now this is all going to be my show. So the Lord set the time. Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but, and again, and IV leaves it out, it says, but behold, or but look, or but pay attention, not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died, yet his heart was unyielding. He would not let the people go. So now here, the, the plague that's given is the death of the livestock. Some people have tried to figure out what caused it. Some people have said, oh, it's got to be anthrax, because then that's what's going to be what infects the people in the next plague. And they would have gotten it from all the dead and rotting frogs, which would have carried it out of the Nile, where it bred, and all this kind of stuff. Regardless, whatever. Uh, the timing is what's supernatural, and the extent of what's supernatural. Anthrax or any other natural disease doesn't distinguish between Egyptian and Israelite cattle, but yet this one did. A difficulty that's raised right here is it says all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but in the next few plagues, there's going to be livestock of the Egyptians mentioned. He's gonna say, bring your livestock in out of the field. So the question is, if they all died, where did the livestock afterwards come from? This is again an example of why you don't press the Bible for wooden literalism in the details that are incidental. Because scripture uses the language of people. And people use things like hyperbole and generalization. And the Hebrew word kol, all, can mean all. It can mean all kinds of. It can mean all over the place that I'm speaking of. Um, it has different meanings. In the previous plagues, remember, it says Moses struck the ground and all the dust of Egypt became gnats. It doesn't mean that every particle of dust in Egypt became gnats. It means that all over the place, dust became gnats. So that's a perfectly valid way of translating or rendering or interpreting this passage. All over Egypt, livestock died, this mysterious death, but nowhere in Goshen among the Israelites did the livestock die. So again, just beware of people that build their doctrines and build their theology on taking every single word in its 100% literal way. That's not how language works today. It's not how language works in the Bible. And no doctrine of inspiration is undermined by recognizing that. In fact, it's made fuller because we recognize that God speaks to humans in the ways that humans speak. So all over the place or all of Pharaoh's cattle or however you want to translate it, all kinds of livestock, whatever, death of the livestock everywhere except among the Israelites. But Pharaoh, again, his heart was unyielding. He wasn't convinced. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace. Have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. Literally, it says toss it into the sky, into the heavens. That, that's the Hebrew word user. Um, 
Yeah, verse 9. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt. Again, every square centimeter or all over Egypt. We don't have to be wiggly little. Uh, it will become dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from a furnace, stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air. Festering boils broke out on men and on animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Now there's a shift here in this sixth plague. This is the first time that it's explicitly stated, now the Lord does the hardening. All up until now, it said Pharaoh's heart was hard, or Pharaoh hardened his heart, or Pharaoh was unyielding. So now we've turned a corner, and it's like, that. it's a thing you see in Scripture elsewhere. There comes a point where God gives people over to what they truly are, and what they truly desire. So it's not like, again, people get... Theologically, they don't know what to do with God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's not like God took a nice, happy Pharaoh king who was wise and wonderful and good and turned him into this monster who's bent on controlling and maintaining power at all costs. No, rather, God sent warning after warning after warning to a Pharaoh who was genocidal, maniacal, enslaving, and, and blasphemous, and power-hungry, and all that stuff. Sent him warning after warning after warning, and each time that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Each time, he went a little bit further into being unsavable. And at a certain point, God allows that hardness to remain. And now, from here on out, God's going to actually confirm to use that hardness to show his glory, as he'll say in the next place. So there's, there, there, there's definitely the idea in Scripture that at some point, if we continue high-handedly sinning and rebelling against God, there is a point of no return. We don't know when it is. The fact that someone can't even be scared of that and desire to repent shows that they probably haven't reached that point yet. But it is a concept that we see in Scripture. Is There comes a time when God will say, enough. You, you, you've rebelled against me your entire life. Now I'm going to make you continue to the full results, the full conclusions of that rebellion. And the punishment that I'm giving you is going to be you going down that, continuing down that path. God talks about, Paul talks about Romans 1, God hands people over to their sin as his wrath being poured out on them. Uh, the punishment sometimes for sin is continuation in and prolonging of the effects of that sin in our lives and the lives of others. And so Pharaoh's hardness now has reached the point of no return. Uh, from now on, God's going to be in the driver's seat in terms of these last plagues. And that brings us to plague number seven. Now, remember in the genealogies, those of you that were with us for Genesis a year and a half, two years ago, whenever you come to the genealogies and we saw those lists of ten, like in the genealogies of Cain and genealogies of Seth, it was always like a list of ten, and there was something, the tenth was the final, like the most important person in the genealogy, but there was something unique or specific or profound about the seventh in that list of ten. Well, here now we're coming to the seventh plague in the list of ten, and so we should expect something to be unique or different about this plague than the others. There should be something that's like, whoa, this is really, uh, this, this is definitive. And, and it is. The seventh plague is arguably the worst uh, other than the final one. And so we read now, then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning. 
confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may serve me. For this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded until now. So give an order to your lot, give an order now to bring your livestock and everyone you have in the field to a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. So now, this is the first plague where God's giving a, a way to avert or to blunt its effect. He's saying to Pharaoh, okay, now it's going to get real. These previous plagues have been bad, but they haven't been life-threatening. Now, people will die if you continue in this path, if you don't listen to the word of the Lord. And he's saying this to Moses in the presence of his officials. So it's not just Pharaoh's the only one hearing this. All of Egypt's officials and leaders are hearing this. And word would have immediately gone out. Because what's been happening for the past month or two has been cataclysmic. has been something that has thrown the whole Egyptian political <laughs> and religious order on its head. God has systematically targeted all of these Egyptian gods with these plagues. You know, the god of medicine and healing, Imhotep, who could heal and treat things like boils and skin diseases. The god Nook, the sky goddess, who, who controlled everything from the winds to the swarming insects, all of that stuff. Uh, the god Hathor, who was the goddess of love and beauty, who was symbolized by the cow, and, and who now the livestock had just been destroyed. Or the Apis bull, the holy bull in Egyptian uh, understanding now had been destroyed in the previous plague. All of these, um, Hecate, the, the frog-headed god, uh, who symbolized fertility, and, and we had seen the fertility of the frogs wreak havoc in Egypt. And Osiris, who the Nile River was the very lifeblood of that god, uh, was targeted as the very first plague, turning it into literal blood, or blood-looking stuff. So all of these plagues have been God's billboard to all the Egyptians and all the people in Egypt saying, I am the Lord God of all creation, even in Egypt, where Pharaoh is the one who is thought to maintain all the balance and the harmony and the power. God is teaching through these things on a grand scale, on a much bigger scale than just individual people and what they think of God. He is teaching a worldwide message. He is doing this for the purpose of proclaiming that, that remember, God had been silent for 400 years before this. Even the Israelites didn't have an understanding of who God was because it had been 400 years, longer than America's been a nation, Israelites had gone without any prophet or, or patriarch or anyone guiding them and, and this relationship with God. So he is stepping back onto the scene in the middle of the most powerful empire in the world at the time 
and making his presence known in a way that would be remembered throughout the generations. So all of this is part of what God's doing. It's not just an incident. It's not just a Bible story. It's not just a moral lesson. It's the biblical theology of God. It's the mission of God. It's how he is carrying forth the plan that he started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When he said, through the seed of the woman will rise up the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And incidentally, later in the prophets, they would speak of the exodus out of Egypt as God crushing the head of the chaos serpent. Symbolically showing God's ringing to fruition the promises that he had made all the way back in Genesis. So it's a thread. The whole Bible, it ties it together. It's one long continuing saga, not a, a, a broken up collection of fables or Sunday school stories. And it also reveals the heart of God and the nature of God. This is a God who gives grace even in the midst of judgment. It was too late for Pharaoh, and it was too late for all who aligned with Pharaoh. But God gives this call to any who are still left who will listen to his voice. Just like he, he bartered down with Abraham over the fate of Sodom and said, If there's only ten righteous people in that entire city, I'll spare them. This is a God who doesn't bring punishment on the innocent lightly or frequently who is always extending mercy and grace even while he's bringing judgment on sin that it rightly deserves. Remember, Egypt had enslaved and oppressed, tried to commit genocide against Israel for hundreds of years. And so now at last they are reaping the consequences of that national policy of oppression. Because God is not the God of oppression, but the God of freedom and serving him rather than serving human masters. So, the officials who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. Those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the fields. Verse 22, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky, so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on men and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. That word literally in Hebrew is fire. It's, it, lightning can be described as fire in, in Hebrew vocabulary, but that literal wording is fire came down to the ground. That's a big illusion for what's later going to happen when God shows up again in what's called a storm theophany, where he makes his presence known through the storm. And he's going to do it after the exodus at Mount Sinai. He's going to do it during the Exodus as the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that goes before and protects his people. Um, he's going to do it at Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Elijah when he rains down fire on the sacrifice. The gods of Egypt were the ones who ruled the storm. In the land of Canaan where Israel was going, Baal was the one who rode upon the clouds and commanded the lightning with his staff. Now Moses is being told, raise up your hand and we'll see with his staff. And that's what's going to bring the lightning of God. So God is acting in a way that would have resonated theologically with all of these ancient readers. So it's very clear. God is the God of the storm. Yahweh is the God of the storm. Not Baal, not any of the gods of Egypt. Yahweh is the God of the storm. And whenever Yahweh shows up in the Bible, it's almost always accompanied by some storm element. Whether it's smoke, thunder, fire, lightning, earthquake... Um, even the Elijah passage where he says the still small voice, that's 
Even that is possibly translated as the, the thunderous quaking noise. We'll get to that probably in a few years when we get to that passage. But regardless, when God shows up, he shows up in power. When God showed up in the garden, it says walking in the cool of the day. The Hebrew doesn't say cool of the day. It says wind of the storm. And, and it's God showing up in judgment. Cool of the day was a later Latin translation into English, and that's what we've come to realize. But it's not what the text actually says. When God shows up, people fear. People quake. People fall on their faces because God is a fearsome God. That's something that we forget a lot of times because we're on the other side of the cross where Jesus is our homeboy and God is a warm fuzzy. But the God of Israel, the God of Jesus, the God Jesus represented and portrayed and embodied and incarnated is a fearsome God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, something that American evangelicals have largely lost due to our emphasis on the Jesus is the friend of sinners. He's the one who says the little children come to me. And all that's true. But remember, you can't ever raise up one quality of God and forget another. And the same God that comforts the children, the same God that reaches out to sinners, the same God that wants to dwell among his people is also the God who dwells in unapproachable splendor. And every time he appears, he even has to disguise or to uh, mitigate his appearance to people lest they be consumed by his holiness the way dry wood is consumed by fire. Uh, in scripture, God is said to be something about three times. It says God is blank. God is love. It says in 1 John. Uh, God is light. It also says in 1 John. And God is a consuming fire, as the author of Hebrews says. Three things that God is said to be. Love, light, and fire. So we always hark on love and light, which are true. Can't forget the fire. Um, so, <clears throat> the Lord said, Moses, when Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord said, thunder, hail, and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell, and lightning slash fire flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt ever since it had become a nation. 3200 BC was when Egypt became a nation. This is taking place around 1400 BC. So almost 2,000 years. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. And Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. This language, here again, we're used to religious language. But this, I have sinned, the Lord is in the right. Those two phrases, Chataz, uh, sin, and Sadiq is in the right, those are legal terminology before they were ever theological. And it, and it had to do with a legal verdict. The one who was guilty was deemed as the one who had sinned. The one who was in the right was deemed as the one who was righteous. Those were legal terms. Like we would say today, acquitted or condemned or however you want to say it. So Pharaoh, it's not some people say, well, this is Pharaoh having a change of heart. He's starting to repent. And now God's not going to let him and that's unfair. It's not that. It's Pharaoh's using just normal legal terminology, basically the equivalent of saying, all right, my bad. Just let's, let's have enough of this hail. Let's wrap this up. I was wrong. You were right. <laughs> no, 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 no. We are well past that. There is no chance of just diplomatically finagling his way out or just admitting legal wrongdoing. 
Like when somebody's let off for murder, but they're found guilty in the civil trial, right? So it's like right. basically saying, yeah, you're guilty, but not really guilty. Or, I mean, it's just this nebulous kind of, and Pharaoh could have done not, God's not having any of it. He's, he's saying, no, this is the path you've chosen. This is the path we're on. However, Moses here is going to intercede. Um, Moses replied, when I've gone out of the city, I'll spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. So even in that, Moses is saying, we're not done yet. I know you still don't fear the Lord God. They had earlier, some of the officials had started to fear the word of the Lord, like the, the, the judgment of the Lord, but there's still not a fear of the Lord himself. There's not a full acknowledgement of who he is. There's not anything approaching a conversion this is just seen as, all right, well, let me get these people out of here. Or let me say what needs to be said so that this hail and thunder will stop. So this is in the midst of this. And what Moses says is, okay, let me, I'll go out of the city and then I'll pray and it will stop. Why, why couldn't he just pray right then and there? Well, one of the things it would do is, remember what's going on outside. It's the worst storm ever in Egyptian recorded history. Hail is falling and beating down and killing people and animals and plants and crops and everything. And Moses says, I'll go out into that and I'll go out of the city, meaning into the field where everybody's being beat down with hail, and I'll pray and it'll stop. There's no fear in Moses' heart of what's going to happen if he walks out into that plague because it's made a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And that's part of the miraculous nature of this. Is Moses knows he can walk unprotected right into the midst of that storm as God's representative, showing all of the world that God makes a differentiation in this case between those who side with Pharaoh and those who side with God himself. So it's a pretty bold thing to say. And he goes out. Uh, and then there's a side note, a parenthesis that says the flax and the barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. That would have put this in uh, March or February, March. Give it sometime in there. The wheat and the spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. The wheat and the spelt would come around in March, April. So this is right at the end of one harvest and before the other has really sprouted up. So the hail would have destroyed one, but maybe some of the Egyptians would have thought, well, at least we have the wheat and the spelt that would still grow. So there's still some salvation there. Not going to happen because of the next plague. But then Moses left Pharaoh, went out of the city. He spread out his hands towards the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped. The rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw the rain and hail and thunder and stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go just as the Lord had said through Moses. So now here we come to the last part or the last of this seventh plague. This was the one where it's like everything in the text basically was crying out for Pharaoh and his officials to look and to see and to realize and to change their course of action. That's what repent means. They, were, they was crying out for Pharaoh to repent. Repent is another word that's been religiousized to the point of irrelevance, but repenting means turning and going in the other direction. That's, that's the basic of the word repent. It means to turn around and go in a new way, a different way. And that's what all of this was trying to get Pharaoh and his officials and the Egyptians who were watching this, who had lived off of cheap Hebrew slave labor for generations, is getting them to see and to turn with mercy within that judgment, with the longing for mercy within that judgment. 
And so we'll see that uh, when the Exodus happens, actually a good number of people do that. A good number of people, a mixed multitude, leave Egypt with Israel. They choose to be on the side of Israel and his God. They get the message of the plagues, whereas a, a, the majority don't. So we are, that's the first sign now of this final cycle. You know, these three plagues and then three plagues, and then this is the last cycle of the three. And we've just seen the first one. The next two will be fairly quick, uh, and then there's going to be an interlude where God sets the stage for what's going to happen after that and brings the Exodus to its uh, climax uh, in the next chapters to come. But we're out of time again. So next week, come back. Exodus 10. Bring some money to tip the wonderful women in the kitchen. Enjoy a nice meal that's been hand-prepared for you. Let people know about this Bible study. And hop on my website, jmsmith.org. And you can see resources and videos. Uh, there's a link on the blog to where we post the videos from YouTube. Uh, you can hop on there. You can check previous weeks if you miss it. See you next week.